Zdrasi tovarishi i dobro pažalovat sad power. I'm Roberto. And I'm Brendan. And together, we're ranking the Russian rulers from Rurik to Putin to see who gets to party it out in the Kremlin or get shipped off to the Gulag. This week, Vladimir the Great. In Russian, Vladimir Vyeliki. But before we jump into today's episode, we want to let you know about our sister Rexipod, the Alexander Standard. They rank Alexander the Great and all of his successors. That's going to be quite a while, but I know who I want to win. He did, after all, give King Parnavaz I of Kartli his crown. History of Sacramento Georgia plug right there. I'm pretty sure Cleopatra is the only one I've heard of. I mean, Alexander? <laughs> Besides Alexander the Great, yes. Well, they have a lot of good stuff in there, and Seleucus I is my favorite, so I can't wait to hear all about him. Here is their trailer. Hello, my name is Meredith. And my name is Dustin. And we're the host of... The Alexander Standard. That's better. Inspired by Rex Factor Podcast, we rank all the successors of Alexander the Great. From Perdiccas to Cleopatra VII. After Alexander the Great died, shit really hit the fan. Seriously, the Hellenistic world was a crazy place. And we've got some crazy stories to tell you. So please come check out our show, The Alexander Standard. I've really enjoyed listening to their podcast since they came out, basically, and I talked to them quite a bit. And they're fantastic people. And by the time that this episode comes out, I can happily say that I have met them in person. And they're just as fantastic as they were online. Wow. You say so very confidently for someone who hasn't met them. (laughs) I know. But this is the future. This is past us talking in the future. So they're great people. True. They're fantastic. Go check out their podcast. And the link will be in the episode description on your mobile box thing. Phone. Yes. There we go. Second time this has happened in a row. Alrighty, Brendan, it is time for us to do the recap for last week's ruler, Yaropolk. What do you remember? Uh, last week, Yaropolk. Uh, 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 uh. The thumbs uh, up is rain. <laughs> okay, cool. Yep, that's pretty much what happened. He was here, then he was gone. But he killed his brother Oleg. And then got oh, yes. murdered by Vladimir. So yeah. So Yaropolk killed his brother and then was killed by his other brother. So mm-hmm. fratricidal war comes to an end and Vladimir takes the reins. But before we continue forward, we need to do an etymology. The name Vladimir comes from the two words Vlad, which means to rule, and Mir, which means the world or society or peace. So Vladimir means to rule the world Ruler of society or ruler of peace. I think that really does track with the current world leader named that right now. Mm-hmm. He really, he's really trying to do something like that, but he's... That's true. Yeah. He's not doing great. 100%. Oh, yeah. No, he's not. No. Slava <laughs> Ukraini. We're going to issue a general content warning for the whole episode here because there's lots of abuse and sexual assault happening. Oh, yes. Yes. A lot of sexual violence and... Well, you didn't say what kind of abuse. There's just abuse. Just abuse. Yeah. Yeah. We, we try to keep it to a minimum, but there's certain parts that we have to keep in because it involves our later rulers, and that is something we need. Yeah. Unfortunately, history has a nasty uh, habit of having bad things happen in it, believe it or not. 
it's not like with Grimm's fairy tales where they cut out the part where the big bad wolf like ate little red riding hood and and grandma yeah so we're gonna put in time markers in the episode description so if you don't want to listen to that we'll also make a warning right before it happens yeah assuming you can figure out what's going on without that information but that's up to you it's yeah anyways let's get started and some we're gonna do something different this time we're not gonna start with vladimir's life whoa plot twist i know we're gonna start with that of his mother's malusha hmm Malusha is found in the Norse sagas and is described as a prophetess and was brought out of her cave where she was doing just fine and taken to the palace in Kiev to assist in predicting the future for the Rurikid dynasty. Hmm, wow. Sounds historically plausible. Absolutely plausible. Remember, Norse okay, sagas. Well, yes, Norse sagas. But again, like um, people who predicted the future did exist in Norse society. There are women called vulvas and not spelled V-U-L-V-A. They were, it was spelled like V-O-L-V-A. Mm-hmm. They, they, they do some kind of um, ritual in order to predict the future, more or less. Yeah. Well, Malusha was accompanied by her brother, Dobrynya. And you may not know this, but this is the same Dobrynya from Slavic folklore who fought with the dragon Zmegornich. And we will cover this in future Patreon episodes. So nice. you get to hear the story about the... the Dobrynya slaying the dragon. Mm-hmm. Again, that's not that's not a legend. That actually happened. That's one hundred percent true history. Absolutely true. So mm-hmm. Dobrynya is great. Yeah. Anyways, while in the palace at Kiev, Malusha gained the attention of the Grand Prince Vyatoslav, who was still under the regency of his mother, Olga of Kiev. Yep. And she bore him a son, which they named Vladimir in the year 958. Sorry, hold on. Can we get like a theme song for Olga? Like a da-da! Like a theme? Something like that. This is the last time she pops up. Oh, really? In in an actual narrative where she's like, people still know her. Ah, that's disappointing. That feels like the end of an era. That's disappointing. It it is, right? And we haven't had had a Kremlin since Olga. So so Malusha was never formally married to Sviatoslav, and she remained as his concubine for the remainder of his life. And once Vladimir was born, he was placed in the care of his mother, Malusha, of course, and his uncle, Dobrynya. So what little we know about his youth places him at the Peshnek siege alongside his mother, Malusha, his grandmother, Olga of Kiev, and his half-brothers, Yaropolk and Alieg, and his brother's mother, Predslava, who is actually Sviatoslav's wife. Once Sviatoslav returned to Kiev and repelled the Peshneks, he made it known to his boyars that he was moving his capital from Kiev to Periaslavitz, much to their surprise. To ensure that his sons would have a piece of Rus land, he assigned him to three different places, yeah, this is the first time in Russian history somebody wasn't trying to take over Kiev. Yeah! Yaropok went to Kiev, Alieg went to Dyerva, and Vladimir was given Novgorod. He was around 10 or 11 years of age at this time. I, I kind of see it as like this really cool thing where like Vladimir was given Novgorod, Rurik started off in Novgorod. It's kind of like mm-hmm. the birth of a... Birth of, na- birth of a nation, or rebirth of a nation, whatever. Yeah, don't call it a birth of a nation, bro. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen that movie, and I don't plan to. Um, the years passed by silently, and Vladimir ruled in Novgorod under the tutelage of his uncle, Dobrynya, who became his closest advisor. Things were quiet in the realm until he found out about the death of his father at the hands of the Peshnegs, and he had to recognize Yaropolk as his suzerain, but of course that was expected of him as the younger brother. 
Then an abrupt noise echoed throughout his grand chamber when Vladimir was brought in a messenger from the south. His brother Yaropolk had just murdered their brother, Alieg, and took the land of Dereva for himself. Now, Yaropolk may be marching north towards Novgorod to bring all of Rusunder's domain, but as we saw last time, he really wasn't. We don't have record of that. And But of course, Vladimir did not want to be killed in the same fashion as his older brother, and decided to flee from Novgorod straight into Scandinavia, leaving Yaropolk as the sole ruler of Kievan Rus. But of course, this wasn't fleeing. It was a strategic retreat. Mm -hmm. Vladimir leveraged his time abroad to bring together a group of Varangian mercenaries who would assist him in taking out Yaropolk. Dobrynya assisted Vladimir during this time and helped him recruit the Varangians to ensure that he would have an army to assist him when the time came. And Vladimir returned two years later at the head of a large Varangian army and besieged Novgorod. He took the city back rather easily and took control of the land that was rightfully his. And in place of Vladimir, Yaropolk placed one of his unnamed lieutenants. And that lieutenant was brought before Vladimir. The prince of Novgorod told him to give his brother one message and one message only. I'm coming for you. <laughs> While this messenger returned to Kiev, Vladimir decided it was time to marry and continue his own family because, of course, he had no heir. It's kind of dangerous having no heir in this time and place. Absolutely. He sent word to Rogvolod, the prince of Polotsk, and because he had heard that his daughter Rogneta's beauty was a thing to behold, and he desired to marry her. Rogvolod read the message and approached his daughter and asked if she consented to marry Vladimir. <laughs> well, that's nice of him. Asking if she consented first. That's a first. Yeah, that is a first. And Rogneta curtly responded, I will not draw off the boots of his slave son, but I want Yaropolk instead. Slave son? Yeah, because Malusha wasn't technically... She was just a, like a prophetess in the, the capital, so she wasn't like... She was, she was Olga's servant, basically. Okay, so it's not a translation issue. It, it is. A, she was a slave. Okay. She was a slave, yeah. And the Prince of Polotsk sent messengers to Yaropolk with the princess's desire to marry him. And just a bit of a podcast footnote... Removing the boots of one's husband was seen as a symbolic act of the bride in the old Rus marriage ceremony. It's like she would like, if they got married, she would have to take off his boots. And she's like, no, you're, this is a slave son. Like, I'm not doing that. But of course, Vladimir was informed of Rogniena's response to his offer of marriage and he grew enraged. This wasn't aided by the fact that Dobrynya had just heard his sister be referred to as a slave and they hatched a plan to take Polotsk by force. <laughs> Man, I love medieval war. I love, like, medieval conflict. It always starts with somebody insulting somebody else's family. Mm-hmm. Just, oh, when I see some... If somebody calls me the son of a slave on a street, you know what I do? I don't start a war. But Vladimir does, so that is what happens. Because he did not want anyone treating him like the lowly son of a slave when he was the prince of Novgorod and the son of the grand prince Sviatoslav. He gathered his Varangians... He gathered his army of Varangians, Slavs, Chudes, and Krivichians, and they set forth to Polotsk. Along the way, they encountered the messengers who left from the Polotskian castle and shot them down once they heard what they were doing. And Polotsk was besieged by the Novgorodian army. Once they managed to enter the city, Dobrynya and Vladimir made their way into the Great Hall, and Dobrynya ordered for the troops to capture the Prince of Polotsk's family and hold them prisoner. Content warning here. I can see where this is going unfortunately. 
Dobrini and Vladimir talked amongst themselves and made plans for Vladimir to marry Rogneda. They ordered Rogvolod, his wife, and sons, and Rogneda to come into the main hall. There he forced the Polotskin family to watch as he raped Rogneda. He then killed Rogneda's parents and siblings, forced her to marry him, and his army set off to march towards Kiev. Sorry, okay, so the princess's name was what? Rog- Rog- Rogneda. Okay, Rogneda. They didn't name the the king's wife, did they? Uh, no. So, this is the Prince of Polotsk. His wife is not named. Okay, just... Prince, okay, Prince of Polotsk. Okay, and his daughter is the princess. So, the Prince of Polotsk is Rogvolod. His daughter is Rogneda. Okay. All you need to do is remember Rogneda from now on. Okay. Rogvolod's dead, so he doesn't matter anymore. Mm-hmm. Yaropok got news of what had occurred at Polotsk, and with Vladimir's massive army coming straight to Kiev, he felt threatened and barricaded himself along with his advisor, Blood, within the city. Vladimir found out about Blood being the one in charge of the incoming messages to Kiev and sent him one saying, quote, Be my friend. If I kill my brother, I will regard you as my father, and you shall have much honor from me. It was not I who began to fight with my brother, but he... And I was, for that reason, overcome by fear, and therefore have come out against him. End quote. Blood thought about this message for a while, and sent one back to Vladimir, saying that he valued Vladimir's sincere friendship. This began the very long messages between the two as, is, as they discussed what to do next regarding Yaropolk. And these plans came to fruition as Yaropolk was then spotted escaping Kiev by going downriver to Rodnia, and Vladimir easily came to the capital city and took it as, as his own. To ensure that there would be no further rebellions from the Rurikid family, he marched down to Rodnia and besieged the castle, leaving them begging for scraps as he starved the city to death. Sheesh. Blood scheming came to an end as he got Yaropolk to agree to meet with Vladimir back in Kiev. Vladimir settled in the Great Hall and awaited his brother's arrival. Blood ensured that Yaropolk's retainers remained behind and closed the doors. In tandem, two of Vladimir's bodyguards came forward, unsheathed their blades, and ran Yaropolk through the chest. Typical. And that is where we start. But, content warning again, rape. With Yaropolk now dead, Vladimir proceeded to rape Yaropolk's Greek wife, from which she produced his son, Sviatopolk. Jesus Christ. After this, Vladimir officially took the crown of the Grand Prince of Kiev. Why is he known as the Great? (laughs) we'll We'll talk about it in the ranking. Okay. Yeah. With the fighting now done in the capital, and Yaropolk dead, and all of Rus under his control, Vladimir could now finally take a sigh of relief. Before he could even get his rear on the throne, the Varangians approached him and demanded that Vladimir give them the tribute they deserved, since they had taken the city for him, along with all the Martin skins in the treasury. Yeah, that sounds like fair payment. It does sound like fair payment. And Vladimir sat down and acquiesced to them, and told them that he'd need a month to collect the tribute for them. Hmm. They left, and waited for a month, and waited and? more, and uh-huh. they keep and they kept waiting. Yeah, and they were stuck with anticipation. <laughs> and the Varangians grew irksome and approached Vladimir in his grand hall and demanded that they give him what he had promised them. Vladimir merely refused to give them anything. Merely? Yeah, he was like, "No, not, I don't have it." And the Reagans protested mm-hmm. so much that they had been deceived by the Grand Prince that they actually were like, we just want to go to Byzantium and find actual paying work. 
Vladimir carelessly dismissed them, but secretly kept the soldiers behind that he considered to be good, wise, and brave men, and gave them different cities to control under his name while the rest made their way southwest to Byzantium. I don't like this ending. They just left? This sucks. That sucks. Ahead of the Varangian group, a messenger was sent to the emperor to make him aware that a group of rowdy Varangians were on their way, and that they should not be assigned to any city, lest they cause mayhem as they had done in Kiev. The emperor spread these men throughout the rural provinces. So they still got a job. They still got a job. It's just that the rural people have to put up with them now. Yep. With this final threat against the peace of his new princedom now gone, Vladimir looked for an organized religious institution to help fill the void for the people. While the Slavic faith was not fully organized, it was what he knew and grew up with, apart with his grandmother's Christianity. He then set up the idols for the Slavic gods named Therun, Kords, Dazbog, Sribog, Simargol, and Mokosh. He's really propagating that Slavic faith right now. Okay, yeah. Yeah, um, and this is when we get a rather long story in the Chronicles where the soldiers then drew lots to sacrifice one of their warriors to the gods, and a young man drew the short straw. This young man's father found out, as he was a Christian and also a Varangian warrior, because he didn't want his son to be a part of this since they were not from a pagan family. Yeah, I'm sure that's the reason. The pagans found out that um, these guys were not letting them do their sacrifice, and killed them both, and they both became Christian martyrs. Mm. And we do not have their names, so we're going to call them Jeff Sr. and Jeff Jr. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, cool. Or, you know, this could, of course, just be a tale that the chroniclers give us because the Slavs weren't actually that big on human sacrifice because it's more of a Varangian thing that they did on occasion. But then again, all pagans practice human sacrifice, Christian bias and all. Yeah, that's true. True enough. Yeah, you know, if you're a pagan, you you kill humans. No biggie. And to settle his power within his, you know, home region, Vladimir appointed those close to him in different positions of power, especially his uncle Dobrynya, to whom he gave Novgorod. Dobrynya took this land and created a small mayoral dynasty in the area. And we're going to not talk about Novgorod unless they come up of importance later, but just know Dobrynya has a small dynasty there now. With all this peace and quiet now settling in, um, Vladimir's lust for battle was not sated, but he decided to replace that lust for blood for something more common throughout his kingdom. Regular lust? Regular lust for that (laughs) of women. And uh, we've mentioned the horrible things he did with Rogneda and... Yaropolk's Greek wife, uh-huh. but with Rogneda, he had four sons named Izyaslav, Mstislav, Yaroslav, and Svyavolod, along with two unnamed daughters. With the Greek woman, he had Sviatopolk. He also married a Bohemian woman named Malfrida, with whom he had Sviatoslav and another son called Mstislav, so there's two Mstislavs. He mm. also had an unnamed woman with whom he had a son called Vyshislav, and a Bulgarian woman with whom he had Boris and Gleb. I feel like you just get increasingly, you're just making these names up. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, his son was Boris. Yeah, Boris and Maurice. Bor- Bor- Boris. And Gleb. That's literally a Dr. Seuss creature name. Gleb. <laughs> Gleb. Of course, we're not done yet because he had quite a number of concubines. According to the Chronicles, he had a total of 300 concubines in the city of Vishgorod, 300 in the city of Belgorod, and 200 in Beristovo. So what, they just they just lived their normal lives until one night every Saturday? You know, every other Saturday he knocks on the door? Yeah, basically. He's like, yeah, you know, I want, mm-hmm. I'm horny, I want sex. And yeah. Then, yeah. Man, 
Imagine that divorce. It's like, oh boy, two Christmases, two birthdays. It's like, oh boy, 1,000 Christmases. <laughs> I know. Oh, gosh. Um, and the um, this is another content warning. Mm-hmm. Um, the Chronicles even mentioned that he abused his position of power and seduced merry women and even raped young girls as well. Uh, okay. Yeah. I was, I was, yeah, I, I was like, content warning, he seduced married women, and I was like, why is that a content warning? Oh, okay. Yeah, he's an absolute piece of Yeah, well, I'm so glad we set up uh, the ranking so that that counts towards points for him. Yeah, um, the piece is not meant to last, as Vladimir's lust for women turned into lust for blood, and he marched against the Lyak people and took their town, and reconquered the Viatikians who had rebelled during the Fratricidal War. The Viatikians actually rebelled twice because they only took a break for about a year before they t- tried to rebel again. Then Vladimir's attention came to the Yatvingians and the Radimitians, but he decided to focus on the Bulgars instead, so he put one of his generals named Volkichvost to conquer these tribes. Volkichvost easily conquered these people, and the Rus soldiers then started to ridicule the Radimitians and Yatvingians because as they were running away from the Rus, they remarked that they were f- fleeing at the sight of a wolf's tail. Because Vokichvost means wolf's tail. It's not the best of humor, but they laughed. It is a pretty cool name, though. Yeah, Vokichvost is awesome. Okay. In the meantime, uh, the Bulgar campaign planning was coming to near completion, and Vladimir was flanked by his closest advisor and uncle Dobrynya. They requested for the Turks to come assist their battle against the Bulgarians and be their cavalry. The Turks agreed, for some money, of course, and they marched against the Bulgars. This war was quickly won, and the Bulgars were subjugated. I feel like, this ha- I feel like the Bulgars are always subjugated. They don't get to keep the land, though. Not yet, at least. Uh, unfortunately, I think that's true of the majority of ethnic groups throughout history and the world. True. As the Bulgar leaders were brought to a sitting Vladimir... Dobrynya leaned in and remarked, I have seen the prisoners who all wear boots. They will not pay us tribute. Let us rather look for foes with bast shoes. And this statement led to a peace between the Rus and Bulgars with no tribute needed. That's so weird. Even back then, people were like, okay, the number one aspect of drip is the sneakers. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Yeah. Even back then, there were sneakerheads. This is so bizarre. I know. This piece proved beneficial to the Bulgars because they then decided to send emissaries to teach Vladimir about the Islamic faith to convert him to Islam and gain a strong ally on their border. Vladimir brought these emissaries in and spoke to them at length. The, the topics that they covered were over the practice of circumcision, abstaining from pork and alcohol, but of course once you die, you're rewarded for 70 beautiful women. I'm just letting you guys know this is from the Chronicles. So this is full of negative stereotypes and it's just reinforcing them. I wasn't aware that stereotype was so old. That's also really strange. Yeah. Yeah. The conversation continues, but the Chronicle decided that it was immodest to talk about such things. Remember that. Hmm. Vladimir considered everything, more than likely because he really enjoyed women, but was put off at the thought of putting off drinking, telling the emissaries that, quote, Drinking is the joy of the Ruses. We cannot exist without that pleasure. That, true enough. Yeah, can you see, like, where the start of, like, the Russians like to drink starts from? Or, like, the Rus and Eastern Europeans like to drink? Can you see where that stereotype starts? Yeah, I can. And, um, you know, Vladimir sent them off with, you know, with some treasures, thanks to their tales. 
and it didn't take long for the Germans to arrive and regale Vladimir about the wonders of Catholicism. <laughs> We're both familiar with that. Yep. They spoke at length about the customs he'd have to partake in, but Vladimir sent them away because of the need to fast. Wait, okay, hold on. I'll, I know what's coming later, but I'll bring up this discrepancy later. Keep going. Yep, yep, yep. And then the Jewish Khazars arrived and spoke to Vladimir about their faith. They covered the tenets of the Jewish faith, and Vladimir was starting to get very interested in it. But then he asked about the location of their homeland. The Khazars responded that their homeland was in Jerusalem, but they had no control over it anymore. Vladimir scoffed them away, responding that there was, uh, there was no use in joining their faith, if they couldn't even be loved enough by their god to keep their homeland. <laughs> Holy sh! Man, the chronicler... Yeah. That sounds right for um, medieval chroniclers. Yeah, but also, I don't believe... Sorry, were the Khazars evangelizing Judaism? Not really? Yeah, I wasn't aware that was an aspect of Judaism that was common back then. Nope. Huh, that's really weird. <laughs> yeah. You can, can you tell this is written by a Christian? Yes. Yes, I can tell. Yeah. And finally, the Greek Orthodox missionary then arrived mm -hmm. and told Vladimir all about Jesus Christ and the story mm -hmm. of how the world started, according yeah. to the Bible, of course. And of course, the missionaries, one of them threw their staff on the ground, it turned into a snake, and then it ate two of Vladimir's snakes, and he was so impressed. Well, Vladimir was very enthralled with the story, and I'm just going to use this time to complain that this was 15 pages of the Chronicler, just regaling about the tales of the Old and New Testament. I read everything here for you guys to see any reactions that Vladimir would get. And it was just him saying, you know, oh, I have a question about this one thing. And then the the emissary would go, but here's what Jesus Christ said about this. And I'm like, oh, 15 pages of this. This is great. Christian Medieval Christian chroniclers really cannot help themselves. And, and it makes me mad because it's like, oh, the, the Islamic guy was very immodest. So we're not going to write anything about that here. But we're not going to be humble. We're going to write 15 pages of, of a book we have right next to us. But here's the spark notes. And I'm like, oh, man, I was so excited to read more about it. But whatever. Yeah. And uh, well, the sequel, the Bible, really, it's a real page turner. Let me tell you. Right. And luckily for the Greek Orthodox minister... Vladimir was intrigued and sent away the missionary with many gifts. Mm -hmm. And then, on the horizon, L. Ron Hubbard with his book, Dianetics. <laughs> How did you know? <laughs> <laughs> no, but he sent the guy away with lots of presents. But he decided, you know, I'm not going to be baptized just mm -hmm. yet. Since I want to learn about all the faiths in the land. Uh, okay, so anyway, this is what I wanted to bring up to call BS on. Yes, Fasting happens in Catholicism. Source, I was raised Catholic. Fasting really happens in Orthodoxy. Yeah. His, if his objection is fasting, Orthodoxy is probably the worst one to pick. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sure, Islam is a lifetime of fasting from alcohol in a certain sense, which they also didn't mention having a problem with fasting, even though that happens a lot uh, in Islam, is my understanding. But Catholicism, yeah. it's like you fast during Lent. Uh, and then no fish, then no meat on Fridays, except fish. That doesn't count. You gotta remember the schism hasn't officially happened yet. Oh no, we have to, we have to eat pasta on Fridays. Oh God forbid, no, we would never accept that. Um, we gotta think about it. It's also like more political because who's closer to the roost? Constantinople or the, the Germans? Well, yeah, of course. I mean, yeah, it does so make it's political. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it does make sense. I mean... 
again, it, it makes sense for both Islam and Eastern Orthodoxy to have a lot of sway in the area. I do buy the part about him rejecting Islam because of the prohibition on alcohol, to be perfectly oh, I, honest. Oh, I absolutely do buy that. Yeah. I do buy that, yeah. Well, having heard from the four main faiths that surround him, Vladimir brought together his boyars and told him about what he had heard from these religious emissaries. They listened to his story, and they took the initiative and told Vladimir that they would want to see these faiths in actions and report back to him what they had seen. Vladimir agreed and picked out the top ten boyars to go and be his ambassadors <laughs> to help make his decision easier with the knowledge that they will gain. Hi, this is WatchMojo.com, and we're counting down the top ten boyars. <laughs> number number ten. Um, and off the boyars went to help Vladimir decide. They traveled through the different territories, first stopping at the Borgars, then the Germans, and then finally at the Greeks. They, they skipped the Khazars because they're like, I think Vladimir was like, no. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to give like a quick uh, TLDR and then I'm going to read the actual quote. The boyars took all these religious services in stride and found that the mosque was just as disgraceful to them and that the German way of worshiping was just as unlikable. Mosques are really nice though. I know, I know. I've been yeah. in a few. It's, they're beautiful. Yeah. However, in Constantinople, the emperor, Basil II, gave them the time of day and he personally asked the patriarch to attend this Rus delegation and show them the glory of Christ. They sat through a church service where they burned incense, a full choir sang hymns, and they attended the most beautiful churches in the land. The boyars were in shock and the patriarch took the time to attend to them and told them what it meant to worship Christ. And they returned home laden with presents and even more honors from the emperor. Vladimir summoned them and asked them to regale him about their expedition. They said, quote, When we journeyed among the Bulgars, we beheld how they worship in their temple, called a mosque, while they stand ungirt. The Bulgars bows, sits down, looks hither and thither like one possessed, and there is no one happiness among them, but instead only sorrow and a dreadful stench. Their religion is not good. Then we went among the Germans and saw them performing many ceremonies in their temples, but we beheld no glory there. Yeah. Also Germans, like, they're not happy either. <laughs> yeah. And then we went to Greece, and the Greeks led us to their edifices where they worship their god, and we knew not whether we were in heaven or on earth, as the famous line goes. Is that a famous line? Yeah, that is the famous line. That, like, literally, every time you see it, you see, like, the, then the Rus went down and went to Greece, and they were like, we knew not whether the, we were in heaven or on earth. Well, it's very interesting. Let's not be too famous, because I never heard it. Well, I have, but I'm also in Rus' land all the time. And then continuing the quote, For on earth there is no such splendor or such beauty, and we are at a loss how to describe it. We only know that God dwells there among men, and their service is fairer than the ceremonies of other nations. For we cannot forget that beauty. Every man, after tasting something sweet, is afterward unwilling to accept that which is bitter, and therefore we cannot dwell longer here, end quote. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to compare, like, we're not going to rank the top 10 Watch Mojo religions, but in terms of... Number one, orthodoxy. Aesthetic, yeah, I mean, in terms of aesthetic beauty, I mean, yeah, it is difficult to top orthodoxy. It depends on which church you go to. But then remember, they're, they're in Constantinople, which is the place with the best churches. Right, so like, right. So they had, like, the top-tier stuff. Mm -hmm. Like Hagia Sophia, the best mosque, I mean church, in all of Turkey. <laughs> tears, tears. 
Vladimir breathed in deeply, excited the prospects of accepting the Greek faith he had enjoyed so much, when the boyars, without prompt, mentioned to the prince, If the Greek faith were evil, it would not have been adopted by your grandmother Olga, who was wiser than all other men. True enough, that is a compelling reason. I know, right? I mean, like, Vladimir, don't listen to your dad, listen to Olga, please. Mm -hmm. Again, we've long established that Olga is the brains of the family. So far, maybe, yeah. She didn't. She maybe she passed her inhumanity to. Uh, this is her grandson, right? Yep. <laughs> yeah, she passed her inhumanity to her grandson in her brutality. Brains. Did she passed her brains, though. I mean, we, we have yet to find out. Yeah, I don't know. We'll find out. Vladimir grinned and asked his men what they all thought about being baptized. They responded that the choice was his, and as their grand prince, they should follow the religion that he chooses for the realm. Hmm. What did mm. Olga say? To Sviatoslav. Um, that he should consider it. If it, he, She told him, if he converts, your men will follow. What did Sviatoslav not do? Uh, not convert. Yep. And I guess it works with Vladimir. I guess, once again, Olga was right, as she tended to be. Hmm. But with Vladimir considering Greek orthodoxy as his new faith, let's take a quick detour down to Byzantium to see what was going on there. Emperor Basil II, or as I'm going to spoil to you, his future epithet will be Basil the Bulgar Slayer, was one of the best rulers of Byzantium and the longest reigning Roman emperor ever. Mm -hmm. Roman in quotes. He is my absolute favorite and he did some great things for Byzantium, but of course failed at some other stuff. Listen to Totalis Rankium of the History of Byzantium to learn more about his life. Anyways, the things that pertain to us is what happened within the first 13 years of his reign, because we see a young Basil coming to the throne, and he struggles to restore the prestige and stability of the empire after his generals made themselves his senior emperor and made an absolute mess of the empire with all the backstabbing and murdering of all the emperors before him. Well, that's one thing that's authentically Roman about them. That is the one thing. I mean, it just kept continuing. Yeah, when we last saw Byzantium, it was back in Sviatoslav's episode, when John Zimiskis kicked the Rus out of Bulgaria and alerted the Pechenegs that they were weak and ripe and ready for an ambush, leading to Sviatoslav's death. You know, we have a nice goblet of him now. It's nice. Yep. With the Rus out of Bulgaria, you'd think that Byzantium would be in a much better position, right? <laughs> nope. <laughs> the Bulgarians profited heavily from the Rus incursion being removed, which allowed them to quickly acquire strength and to assert their independence from Constantinople. You see, right now it's the year 986, and Tsar Samuel of Bulgaria gave Basil a serious defeat on the battlefield. If you play any video games, uh, thinking of like Fallout 4 here, you can see on the top right corner of his like view screen, Basil <laughs> remember that? Yeah, Basil remember that. Yeah, okay. Yep. Uh, but that's not for this podcast, sadly. Ah, uh, too bad. Yeah, Totalis Rankium, guys. Because you see, Bulgaria wasn't the only area that Basil was struggling in, though. You know, despite his northern border being in flux. To the east, in Anatolia, or what we call present-day Turkey, chaos reigned supreme there as well, as a revolt sprung out from the family of the former emperor, John Zimiskis, by his relative named Bardas Skleros. You don't have to remember that, because that revolt was squashed by Bardas Phokas, the emperor of the previous previous emperor, Nikephoros Phokas, the White Death of the Saracens, who Zimiskis murdered for the throne. You see how Byzantium gets confusing really quick? Yeah, I was like, you lost me, sorry. 
<laughs> I know. Anyways, basically, former emperor's relatives are rebelling. Okay. Helping the current emperor. But are you ready to be confused even more? Yeah, let's go. Because Bardas Focus then rebels as well, and he brought most of Anatolia under his control, and he started marching towards Constantinople. So basically, half of the Byzantine land is under a rebel's control. Okay. Basil II began to freak out, and with chaos on all his borders, he reached out to Prince Vladimir for assistance. Negotiations mm. occurred to where Vladimir proposed that he would send at least 6,000 Varankian troops to Basil, but he only wanted one thing from the emperor in return for the usage of his troops. Can you guess what it is? Um, his daughter? He wanted his sister, Anna Porfirogenita. I don't know if that's better or worse. So he's, he wants to marry the current emperor's sister. And then we have another podcast footnote. Because this is actually super significant because the Byzantine throne forbade marriage ties between direct members of the imperial house and that of foreigners. Even more, Anna was considered a Porfirogenite, which means born in the purple, giving her the status of being born to a reigning ruler in a special room in the palace that was decorated in purple. So she had a very high status in like the, in Byzantium. Hmm. So she could technically inherit. Ah, okay. Yeah. So it's not simply that she's high status, she's politically pivotal. Yes. Extremely. Especially because Basil doesn't have kids. Oh, oh, no. And he will never have kids. Oh, Christ. Imagine the child of Vladimir ruling the Byzantine Empire. Which one? <laughs> oh, yeah. Good point. Must have had hundreds, thousands. Oh, my gosh. That family reunion must have sucked. Yeah. But. Because your father is Vladimir. Yep. I mean, that, I mean, that rings on so many levels th- to this day. Um, but surprisingly, Emperor Basil agreed to Vladimir's request as long as Vladimir agreed to be baptized. <laughs> because, because Anna would not be married off to a filthy pagan. So Vladimir sent his Varangian troops to Byzantium, and with, with this new force assisting him, Basil was able to defeat the rebelling Bardas Focus in the Battle of Abydos. Basil got what he wanted, and now he has to give up his sister. Do you think he does? Yeah, Oh, I'm sorry, what happened to not marrying, to it being illegal? Well, with the threat of the rebels in Anatolia gone, Emperor Basil got cold feet and decided to not send his sister Anna off to Vladimir in Kiev. Hmm, this will end well. Vladimir was, of course, rather enraged, once again. And, you know, there could be another political reason for this, and we think it might be the issue of church autonomy that we mentioned back in Olga's episode, because... Vladimir would probably want Anna to arrive with a bishop with sufficient authority to organize the Russian church as an autonomous eparchy. But since Anna was a descent and it seemed like Constantinople would be in charge of the church, Vladimir decided to retaliate. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Oh, I had no choice, please. I know. So speaking of modern day, Vladimir went down to Kherson, which was <laughs> under the control of Byzantium. Oh, gosh. Okay. Yeah. Keep going. And on... And on seeing their approaching Rus' army, the citizens of Kherson barricaded themselves within the walls and defended themselves against the besieging force. The siege held out for days, and no Rus' advancements came against these strong fortifications. However, the resources were running low in the city, and the citizens were becoming very exhausted. But they knew what would happen if they surrendered to filthy pagans. Vladimir threatened to continue the siege until every person in the city died from starvation. We're supposed to get track record here with this stuff. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I, I continually make the joke. It's like, um, only bad things happen in Russian history. I think I know one person who's behind a majority of them. 
Vladimir? <laughs> yeah. Which one? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Harrison decided to ignore the ruse, which prompted Vladimir to order his men to construct earthen works opposite of Harrison. Seeing the construction from their walls, the Hersonites tunneled beneath the city walls in the cover of night and absconded with the materials that the Rus were using and piled it in the center of Harrison. How? So what did he just said the worst he just said the worst guards in history? Probably. It makes sense. Uh Vladimir grew further enraged and ordered his men to continue the construction because he couldn't do anything else. What, you didn't order them to actually watch the f dirt? Apparently not. <laughs> And then we have a man named Anastasius walking the ramparts, which guarded the walls of the city, and he saw his chance. Vladimir was walking through the camp and giving orders to continue the day's siege until Harrison capitulated. Anastasius gathered his bow and arrow, aimed at Vladimir, and let the string go. Seeing the arrow hit his target, he smiled and waited. I saw where it was going immediately, and I was like, oh, Anastasius, that's a cool name. Oh, we saw his chin. Oh, he saw Vladimir walking around. We couldn't be bothered to, well, I don't know, wear armor? Well, uh, you know, the arrow lodged itself in the ground in front of Vladimir oh, and okay. attached was a message directed to the Grand Prince himself. Vladimir's vanguard formed the shield wall around the prince as he read the message. Too little, too late. <laughs> I know, right? The message said, quote, There are springs behind you to the east from which water flows in pipes. Dig down and cut them off. End quote. We have a traitor in Harrison. Oh, no. Vladimir raised his eyes to heaven and vowed that if the information were true, he would be baptized. <laughs> yeah. Wow. You know what? I don't know how Jesus would feel about a, a mass baptism starting with an act of treachery. Well, troops were sent followed, and they followed the information exactly from the letter. And on their arrival, they found the pipes and shut the water flow to Harrison which removed their water supply and led to their quick surrender. Entering Harazan with his retinue, Vladimir sent a message to Emperor Basil saying that he had captured a city and that unless he sends Anna to him along with dignitaries and priests, he will deal with Constantinople the same way he had Harazan. So, uh, the Ruru kids trying to take over Constantinople thing is, you know, maybe gonna happen again? Yeah, maybe. Well, Basil groaned in displeasure and told Anna that she was going to be sent to Kiev. Anna was not having this at all and responded, quote, It is as if I were setting out into captivity. Better were it for me to die at home. <laughs> End quote. Oh, I wonder what she did. Um, well, Basil told his sister that she was being given the chance to convert the Rus to Christ and that this would av avoid war, especially since he was still consolidating power in Byzantium. Yeah, the viewers at home didn't see me roll my eyes at that remark. <laughs> well, Anna was shipped off to Kherson. There, she found Vladimir suffering from an eye disease. <laughs> of course. I swear, if he dies right here, that would be the best. And his sight was wasting away. Hmm. Hopefully that's not the only thing wasting away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and declared to Vladimir that he could only be healed by being baptized or else the cure would always evade oh, him. God. <laughs> I'm waiting for this. I'm waiting for this guy to die. We've been here for almost an hour and he's not dead yet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he was baptized with the Bishop of Kherson, and once anointed, his sight returned immediately. Mm. Seeing this miracle, Vladimir's followers were themselves baptized. He took the, on the name of Basil in honor of the emperor, and was now able to marry Anna Porfirogenita. You know, of course, since he was Christian now, he had to give up all his other wives and concubines. 
<laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure he did. They were baptized and sent off to convents. My God. Literally a fate worse than being married to him. Convent life. <laughs> yeah. And to celebrate his marriage to Anna Porfirogenita, he built a church on the mound, which the people of Hairston took from his earthen works. And as the bridegroom's gift to Basil II, he decided to return Hairston to his new brother-in-law. Oh, how nice of him. I know, right? With this done, he made his way to Kiev with his new wife, the princess of Byzantium and Rus. Once home, Vladimir looked upon the idols he had placed years ago in an attempt to place an organized religion for his princedom, and seeing that these idols offended Christ, he ordered that the idols be removed and burnt to the ground, save that of Therun. He had special plans for Therun. Hmm, I see. He appointed 12 men to beat the idol with sticks because he wanted to beat the devil hidden within the idol that had deceived men in this disguise. Yeah, I'm sorry. I can only react with nonplus men right now. I know. Uh, the people cried out in horror at seeing their gods destroyed like this. Vladimir, seeing the reaction, ordered that all the inhabitants of Kiev would need to make their way to the river to be baptized, lest they face his displeasure. This included the boyars in Kiev. Uh, the peasantry and boyars came together as equals in the Dnieper River and were surrounded by priests. They were all immersed into the water and rose up, drenched, but baptized and were given prayers by the priests. And they all died of hypothermia. Was it summer? Was it summer in... Uh... I, don't, I, I don't know what it is. I didn't write it down. He then enacted reforms that took the children of the best families and sent them for instruction in book learning. Hmm. So... I do like that. He's teaching people how to read. I mean, I mean it's, probably, it's still the rich and powerful, but he's teaching people how to read. Yeah, it means to step forward in the right direction towards literacy. Um, I did find it funny, quite funny that, uh, quote, The mothers of these children wept bitterly over them, for they were not yet strong in faith, but mourned as for the dead. End quote. Hmm. So they're like, don't well, take my son off to the monastery. He's going to be dead. They're aware of uh, Vladimir's reputation. Yeah. With the populace of his capital converted, Vladimir ordered that the churches should dot the land where the idols once stood and began a massive amount of church construction projects. Many of these don't stand because of events that happened later in history, but they lasted quite a few hundred years. The most notable was the Church of St. Basil that was built where Theron's idol once stood tall in Kiev. Along with the church constructions, Vladimir decided to build a few towns and forts to surround Kiev because he wanted to make sure that he wouldn't be caught unaware by any imminent attack. And this made sense since he was constantly at war with the Peshnegs, but he was able to repel them quite often. Despite his baptism and being Christian, Vladimir decided to continue expanding his realm and he attacked the Croats. <laughs> this result is lost in obscurity since the chroniclers mention it and then forget about it. So I'm guessing the result wasn't that great. Yeah, probably not. It may have also been interrupted by a Peshnik attack along the Dnieper River, which prompted Vladimir to rush to fight against them. They found themselves staring at each other across the Dnieper River. No one moved for hesitancy at fording the river to fight. Days passed, and the Peshnik prince grew impatient and proposed to Vladimir, quote, Send one of your warriors, and I will detail one of mine, that they may do battle together. If your man conquers mine, let us not fight together for three years to come. But if our champion wins, let us fight three years in succession. End quote. This seems like the setup in, like, a myth. Where it's like, 
uh, no, it's like a Superman trying to get Mr. Mix's spit like to say his name backwards. It's like, if you say my name three times, I don't know, you'll give me a pot of gold. Well, Vladimir agreed and set off to find a champion within his camp, but was unable to do so. <laughs> what do you mean? He didn't have anyone strong enough to beat the Bechenegs. Okay. So what? In oh. the, the one-on-one battle, yeah. But that is until an old man approached the Grand Prince and told him about his youngest son. This son was unbeatable due to his strength and could easily tear leather to bits in his hand. Vladimir praised God and summoned the boy to him. The boy arrived, confused about the situation. He was like, oh, what? What are you talking about? What am I doing here? And the Grand Prince asked if he was really as strong as his father praised he had been. The boy responded that if the prince wanted to test him, he should bring him the largest and strongest bull in the area. Vladimir did so, and they were both placed in an arena. The bull was pricked with a hot iron and launched towards the boy. The boy grabbed the bull and pulled on its flesh as it ran past him, killing the bull. He held the bull's flesh in his hands still, while staying in place. Alright, I'm taking points off for... Well, I'm adding um, Compromat points for animal cruelty now. Um, yeah. Vladimir clapped and the boy was made into the roost champion. The following day, the cockroach sounded and the Peshenegs arrived with their gigantic and fearsome champion. The boy was of just a small size compared to this massive brute. You can say it was a David and Goliath affair. Yeah, I kind of wonder where they got this idea from. I, want, I do too. The Peshenig man laughed with content at seeing how easy it would be to win against a small boy, and they were directed to a circle. The boy was taunted for a second time, and the battle commenced. <laughs> now go away, I shall taunt you again! Uh, they came to grips and attacked each other as much as they could. But the roost boy managed to latch himself along the Pechenegs man's chest and squeeze as hard as he could. A crack erupted into the sky, followed by several more. The Pechenegg man gave a small gasp and collapsed to the floor, his chest having been crushed by the boy. With this, the Pechenegs knew what would happen and rushed away from the field. This caused the roost army to rout them and slaughter as many Pechenegs as they could. In honor of the youth's victory, Vladimir founded the city of Periaslavl, and he gave the old man and young boy lands around the area, and thus we have just the aptly named Jeffianov family, hmm. because we don't know the names of kids, so they're Jeffs as well. Right. With the Peshenegs gone for the next three years, he returned to Kiev. Okay, I do make fun of these, but I would like to, I would love to see a movie about this. Right? Yeah. Are we, are we about Vladimir, or? Um... No, I guess specifically about this particular drama that started with, uh, maybe not the Peshnegs. Maybe it could start like in media rest just as he's converting to Christianity. That would be a good start to a movie. We are. Next month. Okay. <laughs> it's a Russian movie called Viking. It's about Vladimir the Great. <laughs> what? All right, whatever. All right, I'm, I'm, t- I'm sick of surprises. I was going to tell you when we got to, when I was like, hey, we're watching a movie, let's go. Uh, but, um... Vladimir returned to Kiev, as I mentioned, and the main church that he had been spending so much money to construct was completed upon his arrival, and he was more than amazed. He praised its beauty and gave the church a beautiful gift. Quote, I bestow upon this church of the Holy Virgin a tithe of my property and of my cities. Hmm. It's probably the only virgin he's ever liked. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> he gave the church its first donation and said, quote, if anyone violates his promise, may he be accursed, end quote. Yeah. Uh, this church came to be known as the Church of the Tithes, and the first tithe was given to Anastasius of Kherson, 
and he held a huge festival in celebration of the, for the boyars, with gifts of largesse being given to the poor in commemoration of the event, because Anastasius became a priest in the church. You know, it's actually quite interesting to see how well Vladimir took to his Christianity, because he became a, quite a big believer in the faith. Like, he, it was like, there's no more stories of him, like, raping anyone after this. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess and, that's... And that's a point for Christianity, I guess. Yeah, so he got better, but he well, need, uh, I yeah. don't want to... We'll save it to the end. We'll see what <laughs> yeah. the rest of it turns out. Yeah. Okay, so uh, there's, a, there's a few stories about here about you know him being Christian. So there's one story retelling how he invited the beggars and poor to come to his palace to take the things mm-hmm. that they needed, be it food, drink, or the martyr skins within his treasury. If the people were too weak, he ordered that wagons should be loaded with food and drink and taken all over to distribute to those who were less fortunate. All right. I don't know how to feel about that one, but okay. It's giving food to the poor, you know. Yeah. Um, and then he became so serious in his belief that crime increased in the area for a while, with highwaymen and brigands taking advantage of him not punishing criminals because he thought it would increase his sink out, which, you know, we already know is really high already. Um, well, thou shalt not judge, but yeah, all right. Uh, you know, and baptism washed away his sins, so. That's true. Yeah. Uh, the bishops had to tell him that there was no sin for punishing wrongdoers as long as he followed the law. And going with their advice, he abolished a wear guild in Rus and punished the brigands as the law dictated. So the wear good is basically paying money for killing people or... Basically, basically what it is, if you kill someone, you just pay money to them as restitution. So you abolish that. Now they're just actually like punished. Because if you pay the money, you're not uh, punished. But now it's like, you get punished now. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is the um the uh, blood money um custom. Yep. Um... And then, from the years 998 to 1011, the Chronicles don't tell us much of what happened. Other than, uh, we're going to go over a few deaths now. You know, okay. his wives, of his wives, concubines, and his sons. Uh, Malfrida and Rogiana passed away, followed by his son, Izyaslav, and Izyaslav's son, Sieslav. Um, and last but not least, his wife, Princess Anna Porfirogenita, passed away in 1011. Hmm. And, um, you know, Vladimir was getting older. And his remaining sons, for he had 12 total, were beginning to understand that. He asked his son Yaroslav for the yearly tribute of 2,000 Krivnia from Novgorod, but Yaroslav refused to pay his father. Wow. Great father. He gets tribute from his sons, not the other way around. Right. Now my parents pay for my car insurance. Hmm? Meanwhile, yeah, okay. Vladimir discussed with his council what the best options were, and then ordered them to prepare the roads and build bridges because Yaroslav had broken the law and he was marching against him. And then a cough came from Vladimir, followed by another one. Vladimir became bedridden and he sent off his son Boris to fight off the Pechenegs. Please tell me at the last second, like, his, uh, his, like, queen bed. You know those beds with, like, curtains on the side? Y- you know what I'm talking yeah. about, right? Yeah. Yeah, please tell me at the last second, like, a pillar falls and crushes him. He doesn't deserve to die. Of old age, sorry. Well, the coughing fits became worse and worse, and Vladimir passed away peacefully on July 15th, no. 1015. <laughs> his companions took his body and buried it within the Church of the Tithes, and he was placed in a marble coffin and mourned intensely. Well, can you go see it still? Uh, the church was broken down. When? We'll cover that in like 200 years. Okay. Yeah. Um, and just to end with the Chronicles here, the Chronicle goes on to say, quote, even if he was formerly given to evil lust, he afterward consecrated himself to repentance, according to the teaching of the apostle that when sin increases, their grace abounds the more. Even if he had previously committed other crimes in his ignorance, 
he subsequently distinguished himself in repentance and almsgiving. As it is written, as I shall find you, so shall I judge you. End quote. And that is Vladimir the Great's life. I'm just to let you know, I cut out a lot. There was a lot more in this. And I cut out a lot. Because there's just like, basically, there, once he becomes Christian, it's just, he built the church here. Then he went to this battle and built a church there. And then he did this and built a church there. And I'm like, we're not going over that. That is too much. Um, yeah. So um, I think it's time well, we, uh, we we start and rank the the Vladimir the Great. Yeah. So who gave him the great epithet? He is a saint. Because he Christianized okay. Russia. So the, the chroniclers gave him the epithet the Great. Because he Christianized the nation. All right. Well, I guess we'll have to just get into it. Yep. Spetsalne operatia. Special operations. How well did they do in battle, lead in battle, or have others lead in battle for them? It's a mixed bag, I think. I have to, yeah, it's a mixed bag. I have to do give him some credit. He did better than most. I'll say that. He, he didn't do as good as Alieg. Yeah. But like, but he did more than Olga. Because Olga stayed in the realm. He actually fought outside of the realm quite a few times. Um, interesting. That is an interesting point. I don't think he's still... We didn't rank her very high for giving her many points for that, did we? No, Olga has a total of... Um, for, she has an 11 for Spetsalne Operatia and Aliyah has a yeah. 15. Yeah, most of her points came from came from cunning, I think, uh, for ruling. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, so... Um, but so, like, just to recap his accomplishments. Okay, so he took took Kherson, or Kherson. He uh, took Kherson from Byzantium. Yeah, Byzantium, That's one which is very hard to do. He had help. He had help. He had help, but he still took the city. Yeah, he still took the city. Uh, and I mean, getting people to betray betray you in favor, that counts as military prowess, in my opinion. Yeah, because it's basically getting people like the assist. Um, right, right. I mean, he, uh, you know, he was he left, he fled from Novgorod and took it back, and then basically reconquered everything mm-hmm. from the north down to Kiev. Yeah. Also, the episode at the beginning where he was insulted by... Uh, Rogvlod. Well, his Rognieta, future wife. His wife. Yeah, Rog- yeah. Rogneta. Um, and he just said, all right, well then, and then he went and conquered them. Yeah. And then, you know, he took back, he took over Kievan Rus from his older brother who held the whole thing. But Yaropok was just like, also not the best fighter as far as we yeah. know. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, he fought the Pechenegs a few times, but as his reign went on, this wouldn't be consistent with victories. So like he'd win some, he'd lose some, but like he'd win more than most of the time, but he'd still lose like a, a good percentage mm-hmm. of it. So I would say it would be like an 80-20 split of him winning 80% of the time. Because I was going to give him a 7. Yeah, so like he, he beat the he beat back the Pechenegs a few times who were like control like the lower area near Crimea. Yeah, so he has a pretty good, tra- I think he has a pretty good track record. Fairly good. Yeah, um, and he, he also conquered quite a few tribes around the area. And he actually fought mm-hmm. as far as, you know, Croatia. He fought the Croats. But of course, yeah. we don't know the result against that. But like he fought them. So... Um, yeah, he knew how to pick his generals too because you have Volchikhost beating back the Redemichians and the Yatvingians while he was mm-hmm. preparing to attack Bulgar- the Bulgars, the, Vol- the Volga Bulgars. So it's like he can pick his people. So what do you want to give him? Uh, I'm staying with a seven. I'm going to give him an eight just because I think like not being able to beat back like nomad, like not nomads, um, like cavalrymen is just like, yeah, they're nomads. You're not being able to beat them back all the time. It's fine because you, you won't have a set battle against them we have that one thing a one story from the chroniclers but it doesn't tell us too much it just says he had that one-off fight with them and that's about it mm-hmm. so um seven for you then total i mean do you want me to do the total it's a total of 15 
I already did the math for you. <laughs> yeah, 15, yeah. Um, so, 15 for Fesalino Padazia. Next up. Uspiech. Success. How successful were they in running their nation? What cultural significance did they leave behind? And I want to lead this discussion with cultural significance. He is the reason Russia is Christian. Yeah, that's a big one. Um, that is the most lasting thing of yeah, his Yeah, cultural reign. legacy. Um, I also have to give him credit for um, introducing scholarly learning, basically. Yeah, this is getting higher and higher. <laughs> yeah. Can we get much higher? And then, you know, he built a massive series of churches, some of which the ruins yes. still stand to this day. So, you know, mm-hmm. they might be in ruins, but they, you can still see them. Um, right. And he has a lot of churches in his honor. So they're named St. Vladimir once he was um, canonized. Right. And then um, he, yeah, yeah. It's like he's basically the reason, and he's also a saint. So it's like, yes, we, you know, we don't have to agree with the reason why he's a saint, but like he is a saint. I mean, yes, I'm not an Orthodox Christian. I'm, I'm pretty neutral on that. I don't yeah. care. I have, uh, I have his icon in my room. Mm-hmm. I kind of regret that now, but whatever, whatever. Yeah. So, what do you think for success? Well, we haven't talked about how successful he was in running his nation. And... Um, so he actually introduced coinage. He made a variety of reforms for the land. And it kind of made things better for him to run it, centralize it a lot more. You'll see how that works out next episode. Yeah, but that won't be his fault. That won't be his fault. But he did, while he was in power, he did centralize the land as much as he could. And, you know, he actually introduced currency. Like, oh, official currency. We actually have coins. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah. Ooh, I kind of want to kind of want one of those now <laughs> right yeah so what's the score you're thinking here um honestly i i mean he christianized a nation that alone is enough for like me to give him at least a nine but with all the churches and also with the success he had in running his nation that pushes it to a full 10 for me and that's a full 10 for me for a total of 20 in uspiech wow all right now here's another top score compromat what things did they do behind closed doors or outwardly that made others dislike them? Uh, where do we start? Let's start at the beginning, actually. You see, he killed his brother, serial rapist. Um, so kinslaying, yeah, several instances of, wait, well, two, right? There's the, two, I, and then he's also mentioned to rape children as well. Oh yes, yes. Um. Um. Okay, so yeah, but with these guys, honestly. Let's just put the number at of victims at indeterminate, honestly. Especially since he was the prince, like the most powerful person in your nation being a serial rapist will lead to a lot of victims. Yeah, and then um let's see, he start he basically did starve several cities. Like the one where mm-hmm. in Rodnia where uh, Yarapok was, we mentioned it last time, but they called that the famine because he literally starved them for that long as he sieged them. Mm-hmm. Like he, and he was like, he, he starved several cities out multiple times. Yeah. Okay. So basically siege war, basic siege warfare tactics. Um, the fact that the chroniclers mention it, it's like, yeah, sounds bad. Yeah. I'm going to count having hundreds of concubines because although in our modern progressive era, we say, well, what's wrong with having multiple sexual partners back then? They don't have a choice. They did not have a choice. Yes. Which is why it's illegal in some countries. Most countries. Yeah, most countries, actually. So I can't think of anything else. Yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Because, like, after he Christianizes, he 
He stopped doing that, yeah. As far as we know, because the Chronicles might just be portraying him in positive light. Yeah. So If he was destroying... Okay, the thing about burning and destroying autos, if he was doing that to another person's culture, I would call that as compromat. And actually, I mean, I would also call forceful conversion compromat. I understand that that's how nations in the past were converted. Some people think that's a good thing. Uh, those people are wrong. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm going to add more compromat, but honestly... Like, if I could give him a higher score than 10, I would for Compromat, but I can't. So I'm guessing it is a 10? Yes, it's a 10. Okay. That is a 10 for me as well. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was... I was going to say, I was very deeply uncomfortable researching this guy for a while. We can ask Brendan. I was not happy, most of it. I think you sent me those messages at, like, 2 a.m., so I was not paying attention. Sorry. That's fine. Next up, we have... Oh, my God! How good did they look? I'm going to guess not very good because, well, when you're the king, you can just marry people if you like. Okay, I'm going to send you the most contemporary thing we have, but it is not the one we're going to judge him off of. All right. Oh, contemporary. Okay. Contemporary because it is his coinage. Yeah, this is cool. I like, this is neat. Uh, Well, this barely resembles a human being, so I'm not even going to describe, describe to the viewers what I'm looking at here. But it is very interesting. It's just a coin with an extraordinarily rudimentary human face on it and some lettering on it which i can guess what that guess what that says um but it kind of it doesn't look like cyrillic it looks like more like uh futhark to me but whatever and then that's the picture we're basing him off of okay can you you describe him for us yeah so he's dressed as much like an orthodox priest as a king especially with that beard yeah so he has a big white bushy beard with a mustache um, he has short grayish brown hair, uh, very nice crown, very nice staff with cross on the top. He's very nice bracelets, red shoes, green tunic, I guess it's probably called something else, but it looks like a tunic tunic has gold fringes, very elaborately decorated gold fringes, um, red, um, I guess cloak with very, um, some elaborate decorations on the shoulders, but it's simple decorations on the fringes mostly. And he's standing in front of a throne. So, I mean, he's fine, I guess. He's not, ug- he's not actively ugly. Um, yeah, I'm going to give him a, I'm going to give him a middle of the road five. I'm going to give him a seven because I actually do like how he looks in this. Mm-hmm. Alrighty. So that is a total of 12 for Bojimoy. Yeah. Is, yep. I do have to remark, this might be like... This kind of sounds like the most successful ruler so far. Even more than Olga of Kiev. Because, you know, he died of old age. Yep, and um, I think it is time for... Um, yeah, so you might rule along with Olga, but like, here's some other pictures I have for, for Vladimir for you to see. <laughs> <laughs> he looks like that, that meme from 2010. Okay, well, the top is a statue, and they always make those look handsome. Well, that's the one we used for uh, Rurik. It's the same, it's the same, play, same statue. Yeah. So it's the, sa- it's the same statue, but it's just a park with Vladimir on there. Yeah. Hold on. What it, What does that remind me of? I don't know, but it is something to behold. This is. These are all going off on the uh, the episode page, so it is. It's it's uh it's fun. Here, hold on a second. Um. No, this this is what he looks like to me. Come on, it's taking forever to load. Okay, for the audience at home. Um. You remember those like videos that were popular on Vine a while ago where it was a guy who was like pulling up 
pictures of people and then pulling up like things to compare them to he's like Ooh! and he would just like have a hilarious laugh look look at this dude oh, oh my god. god is it is it the the frog the frog yeah, short frog story it looks like frog and toad yeah oh my god Bruh. look at this dude Bruh. look at his hair <laughs> i know uh okay longevity how long did they last on the throne uh how long do you think they last brendan sorry sovereignty wait is it longevity or sovereignty sovereignty yeah, we're, we're mixed. We, we mixed it up at this point. <laughs> yeah, sovereignty. How long did they last on the throne? I don't know. Um, well, he died of old age, so thirty years. Very close. Um, so Vladimir reigned in Kiev. We're not counting his time in Novgorod. From July, um, from June eleventh, nine hundred seventy-eight, to July fifteenth, ten fifteen, for a total of thirty-seven point zero eight years. Okay, wasn't far off. You weren't so. This gives him a score of 14.76 out of 20. Wow. And that brings his total score to a whopping 81.76. I knew he was going to score higher than Olga of Kiev. Wait, did he? He did. By 10 points. Like literally, oh, uh, by less than 9 points. Like almost well, 10 points. Yeah, this is our fault for having Compromat count for so much. Olga of Kiev was the fun Compromat. That's the thing. <laughs> yeah, this is a sad Compromat. Yeah. Uh, but Olga got an 18 in Compromat. We only gave her 18? We only gave her 18. She had 20 in success because she was able to reign that... She was able to okay. be a successful ruler. Wait, did we take Compromat points off because they deserved it? Or something like uh, that? No, I think I'm the one who took um, for Olga. It was it was me. I took the points off. Well, I'm not going to ask why. No, we, co- we covered it in the episode. Yeah, I, oh, I, well, I forget. Well, I think it is time to figure out um, the question... Is Vladimir great enough? Is he Christian enough? Is he horrible enough to be Are you partying in the Kremlin or off to the Gulag? Are you smart enough? And gosh darn it, people like me. Uh, here's the thing. I would like to send him to the Gulag. But the thing is, we gave him points for being bad. And on top of that, all of his other successes, like all the impact he had on history... I feel like I'm forced to send him to the Kremlin. Yeah, Kremlin. Like, he's horrible, but, like, he's in- he's super interesting, though. Yeah, he is interesting. Yeah, like, uh, it is, it's, 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 I mean, we have to, because we're, you know, we're going to have yeah. worse people we cover, but, like. Yeah, they're probably much worse people, which is really heartening. I know, right? We're like, oh, we gave, we already gave top scores for for Compromat. We're like, it's like, it's, you're the worst so far, and that is what's saddening. Yeah, and it's like, oh, oh man, this is gonna be rough. So, with a total of eighty-one point seventy-six, Vladimir the Great, you are great enough to party it out in the Kremlin with your grandmother and your great great uncle. Yeah, we'll have to look at a family tree. It's com- it's confusing. All family trees are confusing. At least there's not incest in this yet. Yet, yeah. Um, yeah. It's a European royal family. The incest is not far behind. Yeah. So Vladimir the Great, congratulations, Prince uh, Andre, shoot the cannons. I'm not going to. <laughs> I'm not going to wish him a congratulations. Uh, I'm just giving him the, the we, you know, whatever. Uh, Prince Andre, shoot the cannons already.
Okay. Cannon's fired. And that brings us to the end of the ranking. And it is time for the poem. All right. I sent you the link. Mm-hmm. I have it right here. This is this is by Andre Bielli. He wrote a very famous book about... It's called Petersburg. It's about the 1905 revolution. And, like, you're following the eyes of a terrorist. I skimmed through it. Um, I had to read it in, like, two days because for class because I forgot about it. But anyways, I need to reread it. So okay. um, this is called... Hooliganskaya Piesinka, or A Hooligan's Little Song, because I thought it'd be nice to give him a hooligan song. Zili bili yadaon, padrujili spacharon, brikadilka miniaskiliet, nogazim im nogaliet, kosyukriya pok sersem prost, abhadili mui pagost, pominaun sasmihamon, dien visielich paucharon, kak nisli zagrobom grob, Kakhadil za grobam pop, za dimil kadilam nos, torsi kuchir gropavios, so sviati mi upokoi, pridavili nastaskoi, zili bili yadaon, tili 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 don. Uh, leave it up to the Russians to ra- write a song like this. Andrea Belia, Hooligan's Little Song, translated by Vladimir Markov and Meryl Sparks. Once there lived, both he and I, to be friends, we had to die. Skeleton, he'd visit me, winters, summers, frequently. Simple heart and solid bone, we strolled this graveyard alone. And with laughter, he'd recall that gay day, our funeral. How they bore box behind box, how the priest tagged over rocks. Censor smoke filled up the nose, fat coachmen made coffin rows. Rest with all saints and the Lord, they pressed us down with a board. Once there lived, he and I, long, tilly, 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 dong. To get more direct contact with us, feel free to access our website at czarpowerpod.weebly.com. There you can find the show notes, pictures, bibliography, and vote on whether you think Vladimir deserved the Kremlin or the Gulag. It also has links to our social media, which is just at czarpowerpod. Czar is spelled T-S-A-R. And where can we find you, Brendan? The best way to find me is just on Twitter at foster underscore writing. That's spelled F-O-S-T-E-R underscore writing. Um, and whatever I'm doing there, I'll put on there. And if you follow us on our stuff, you can just find this stuff there. If you would like to support the show and help us expand and grow, feel free to subscribe to our Patreon. You can access the bonus episodes for both Czar Power and the history of Circuit Velo, Georgia. This month, we will have a bonus episode on Baba Yaga for Czar Power and a review of the Georgian-Soviet film Salt vs. Vanetia for the history of Circuit Velo, Georgia. If you'd like to do something that's free... Leave a review on your favorite podcast host, be it on Apple or on Spotify or any other thing that you use. And that's a Dosunia Tavarishi from me. And from me, and this episode especially applies to this episode, Blushprzdayet Parazitov. See you soon. Bye. Let's get this party started. Let's get it started. Ha. Let's get it started <laughs> in here. Bum, 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 b